This evening, I'd like to talk about the challenge that faces us as heirs of the Dharma in the West. And that is the challenge that we have of awakening or coming to realization in the midst of our daily life situation. For the most part, the deepest practice of Dharma in Asian cultures has happened in monastic traditions. In the monasteries, it's a situation that is set up for the purpose of intensive investigation. For now, it seems that Dharma in the West is manifesting in a different form. It's not a monastic tradition particularly here. We find ourselves with relationships and jobs and work and the busyness of our daily life and at the same time committed to the same quest of awakening the mind, of realizing freedom. So how can we do this? One of the elements that we must bring to our practice, to the Dharma practice in our lives, I think is a sense of urgency. Because without the continual reminders in the environment, in the situation, as for example in in a monastery, it's easy to get lost in the habitual patterns and conditioning of our lives, the habit pattern of forgetting, of not paying attention, of not investigating. So the quality of urgency of seeing that there's an important task to be done. We can either live out our lives playing out the patterns of old habits and conditioning, or we can take this opportunity, what's called in the Buddhist tradition, the precious human birth, We can take this opportunity of the precious human birth to investigate and explore in the deepest possible way the nature of the mind, the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom. But it requires an enormous commitment, a willingness to do that. It's the sense of urgency that comes if we would consider the question of whether we would be able to die tonight having done what we wanted to do in this life. Because in fact that's a real possibility. We have 
have to look, we have to explore, we have to pay attention with that kind of interest and with, with that kind of sincerity. The Buddha talked of one way to awakening, one way to realization. And that way is awareness, it's attention, it's mindfulness. And this is not a question of technique. It's not that there's one technique to practice because there are many. There are many methods, there are many techniques, there are many ways to cultivate awareness. But it's that quality of mind. Awareness is a quality of mind. It's not a technique. If we want to discover the nature of experience, the nature of the mind, we have to be aware. We have to be awake in each moment. Paying attention. Paying attention to what? That's easy. Everything. We're sitting, we pay attention. We're walking, we pay attention. We're lying down, we're paying attention. We're standing, we pay attention. We're eating, we pay attention. We're working, we pay attention. We're making love, we pay attention. We're going to the bathroom, we pay attention. We take our life as a time of practice. This is the way. This is the way to understanding. Krishnamurti, in one of his teachings, said that it's the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. It's the truth which liberates. And how do we come to understand the truth? By paying attention, by being aware. And it takes practice. It takes the practice of opening to what presents itself in each moment of experience. Each moment is a gift. It's a gift of a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a sensation or a thought or an emotion or a person or a situation. Each moment is a gift. What we have to look at is our relationship to to these gifts that keep coming. What do we find as we begin to look, as we begin to be aware of this presentation of experience? We find that although we may have the idea that openness is a good idea, it's, it's what we might like to be, we find as we examine how our experience is unfolding, that actually there's a fair amount of resistance to different kinds of things. Experience arises, and at times we're open, and at times we're pushing away. We don't like what's there. We have aversion. And this aversion, or this resistance, keeps us from understanding the nature of phenomena because we're close to it, we contract, we pull back. What are the kinds of things we have resistance to? 
you probably by now have a pretty long list of your own particular. But there are a few general areas that people commonly find difficult to open to. One of them is pain. Painful feelings. What's the conditioned usual reaction of the mind to pain? Don't like it. The resistance to pain, to unpleasant feeling, takes different forms. It can take take the form of blatant aversion, where the mind is quite clearly rejecting it with quite a bit of dislike. And when that happens, pay attention to the aversion, to the dislike, and see what that does in relationship to that pain. If there's pain and we don't accept it, and if we're resisting it, what happens? We contract. And it's like pushing the pain away, contracting back inwards. What happens? We create more pain. We create more tension. It's not a satisfactory way of relating to it. It simply creates more suffering. There are other kinds or ways that we resist pain, more subtle ones. There's a meditator's disease. And the disease is, it's called the project mentality. You come in to sit with a project. (laughs) This sitting, I'm going to work on the tension in my shoulders. And we massage it with our minds and we try to move things around and to breathe into it and to breathe out of it. That's not mindfulness. That's a kind of resistance. An even more subtle form of that kind of resistance is the bargaining mind. I'll watch it if it'll go away. I mean, how many times have we been with the pain in the knee or the pain in the back? I'm being mindful, I'm watching it, so leave already. (laughs) Again, that's not attention, that's not awareness. Although it's in the guise, it's in the costume of awareness. We're watching it, we're looking at it. But there's resistance built into that. We're leaning against it, we're trying to push it away. And so as the mind gets more focused and more attentive, we can begin to see the subtleties. Now, the blatant aversion generally becomes obvious quite quickly. But to begin to get more subtle in one's perception of how the mind relates to experience, in this case, pain, painful feeling, to see all the ways, the more and more subtle ways, that we're not simply open to it. If there's any sense of being with experience in order for something to happen, that in order to, or in order for, is the signal that there's, that there's resistance in the mind. That it's not a loving willingness to be with what's there. Resistance to pain, that's one big area that's very common in our, in our conditioning. And so in our practice, we take a look at that. 
And we learn how slowly to soften into that experience, to relax into it. That it's, it's totally okay for it to be there and to feel it. There's another area beside pain that we generally have a fair amount of resistance to. And that is unpleasant emotions. There's a whole range of unpleasant emotions that we tend to deny or avoid or repress. And for each of us, it's a different set. We each have our own particular ones that we don't like. For some people, the feeling of unworthiness is not acceptable. We don't like that feeling. And so we do everything to avoid it, to avoid feeling it. We avoid any situation that might call up that feeling of unworthiness because we're afraid to feel it. Some people don't like anger. Avoid anger. And so will avoid any situation in which that feeling may arise. Some people don't like feeling stupid. Feeling stupid becomes an unacceptable feeling. And so there's this fear of any situation that may make us feel stupid. And you see, you can, you can extrapolate from this list how restricting it is in our lives. If we're afraid to feel certain things, that means we always have to be on guard that that feeling is not going to arise. We have to avoid every situation that might call that feeling up. Do you see the possibility of instead of trying to protect ourselves from having those feelings, the possibility of getting friends with those feelings, becoming friends with them. Feel stupid? Fine. Enjoy the feeling of being stupid. <laughs> oh, what a relief. <laughs> we don't have to pretend to be smart. <laughs> or feeling unworthy, or sad, or angry, or whatever, whatever it is. But these feelings are part of the mind. They're part of everybody's mind. They're impermanent. They don't last. They're impersonal. They don't really belong to anybody. They arise when certain conditions are there, and they pass away. And we don't have to resist them as much as we do. Now, as we accept them, we find that they're, they're fine. It's just part of the passing shower. We invest them with power by our resistance to them. And so, as with physical pain, a good part of the practice is seeing and investigating how we're pushing these things away and to begin to soften and relax and open, to see that it's okay to have all of these feelings. It makes our life, our relationship, so much easier.
We resist pain, we resist certain kinds of feelings, we resist certain kinds of situations. There are certain situations with you know, our work or our jobs or our home life, whatever, that we don't like. Recently it's been coming in my practice the realization of how strong the desire is in myself to avoid conflict. Right? Joseph makes everything okay. You know, just let everything be okay. And so this tendency that I've been noticing is just to avoid any, any kind of situation that's not okay. And it's been very interesting just to, to see that situations... Those are the kind of situations that I've been pulling away from. To see, just to surrender to it. To get okay with that situation. I'll share with you one story. Not exactly related to the avoidance of conflict, but another another kind of avoidance. It happened while I was uh, doing my practice in this small hut in India. It was, it was very small, and it had no door, just had a piece of canvas. And I was sitting in my bed, meditating, and this cat walks in and jumps on my lap. And that was something else I didn't like. <laughs> I have this thing with cats. Dogs are fine, cats. I'm not wild about them. The cat comes in, sits on my lap. Kind of pick it up, toss it out the door. (laughs) Fifteen seconds later, it's back, sitting in my lap. (laughs) Pick it up, toss it out. This process, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half. (laughs) It went on. The cat would come in, sit down. I'm trying to, I'm getting more and more irritated and annoyed at this cat. Toss it out, comes back in, toss it out. Finally, that that cat was the Buddha (laughs) coming to visit. It was so persistent. (laughs) After about an hour, an hour and a half of this, it forced me to surrender because there was nothing else to do. So the cat comes in, sits on my lap. Okay, let it sit. (laughs) I let it sit. One minute later, it gets up and walks out the door. (laughs) It was such a good lesson. When we resist, we empower. We're feeding the situation by our resistance to it. To learn as best we can to soften into, whether it's physical pain, certain emotions, certain situations that we don't like, that we don't have to keep out, we don't have to push away. Even when that's the habit or when that's the conditioning, we can learn to decondition that response. Another example, which is very interesting to work with, and that's the resistance we have to different kinds of people. Have you ever met somebody who you found to be totally obnoxious? <laughs> Just the way they were in their energy and everything they did and was just hard to be with, hard to be with that person for you. 
it's interesting to see how we relate to people, what level we're relating on. Generally, we relate on the, uh, we could call it the personality level. So if a, per- if a person's personality is difficult, more than difficult, abrasive, you know, and obnoxious, generally that personality level energy is coming towards us and because it's so difficult and so abrasive, the tendency is to push it away somehow. You know, either to avoid them or to get angry at them or to contract into oneself. Because we don't like to feel that energy. There's another level that we can relate to that person on. And what it takes is getting quiet enough and getting centered enough to actually look at that person, to really look at them as a being, to look at them as a total being. And I mean look, actually look with one's eyes, to open up one's eyes, to see them. And what we see generally is that all of that obnoxious, abrasive behavior is really coming from a place of suffering. Why is it that people behave in a difficult way? Because of pain. Because of a lot of suffering in their lives. And when we can see the suffering, which doesn't take psychic power, (laughs) it just takes opening one's eyes. When we relate to the suffering rather than to the personality level, it is amazing how quickly our relationship to that person changes from resisting and fighting and struggling and avoiding. When we can see the suffering out of which they're coming, immediately in that moment, the heart opens with compassion. It's not, it's not something that has to be thought about. It's the response of the heart to seeing the suffering. So that's another way that we can learn to stop avoiding and resisting to drop down and open up to it takes a willingness to be open. It takes a willingness to see, to look. There's one last kind of situation I'd like to talk about in terms of resistance. And in some ways, it's the, it's the aspect that comes up most deeply in the meditation practice. And that's the experience we have, the resistance we have to the experience of the existential transiency of phenomena. Right? The, the fact that all, all life experience is momentarily, continually, instantaneously arising and transforming and changing. And that there's no stability, there's no security, there's nothing to hold on to. And as our perception gets more tuned, more refined, and we begin to experience that momentariness of phenomena for ourselves, generally the mind doesn't like it at first. It doesn't like to open up, doesn't like to let go, to surrender to the insubstantiality of phenomena. 
And so a good part of our practice, as we work through the resistance to pain into different emotional states, to different situations, we drop into an even more basic level of just seeing everything in constant flux. And we come up against our fear of that, our resistance to that. And as with all the other kinds of resistance, what we learn through observation, through attention, is that it's okay to surrender, to soften, to relax, to become one with that flow of change rather than try to obstruct it. So what are we doing in our lives? We find when we pay attention that a good part of our energy is spent resisting what's unpleasant. Unpleasant physical physical sensations, unpleasant emotions, unpleasant people, unpleasant situations, the unpleasantness of change. Half the time we're resisting what's unpleasant, the other half of the time we're reaching out for what's pleasant. Let me get, let me enjoy, let me hold on to, let me grasp that which is pleasant. So our life is, is the seesaw of resistance and attachment. We resist what's painful and we try to hold on to what's pleasant in an attempt to achieve some sort of security for ourselves. We get attached. We attach ourselves to different things in an effort to find some stable place, some secure place, some place that's going to be happy. What do we get attached to? One of the big things that we get attached to in this effort for security we get attached to sense pleasures. Just as we avoid, try to avoid and resist sense displeasures, we get attached and try to hold on to those sense objects which are pleasurable. The wanting mind, the mind which is craving or clinging. What's the problem with this? What's the problem with getting attached to sense pleasure. There's a distinction here that must be understood clearly because it's often misunderstood. There is no problem with sense pleasures. Sense pleasures are fine. They're just part of life experience. The problem is in attachment to sense pleasure. I hope that you see the difference between those two things. One is the open enjoyment of experience as it comes, and the other is the effort of the mind to grasp, to cling, the wanting mind. Why is the wanting mind a problem? It's a problem 
for several reasons. One is that it's never satisfied. How many enjoyable things have you had in your life? Many, probably. Many. Many, many, many. (laughs) Are you satisfied? Probably not. (laughs) Because it's the nature of the wanting mind never to be satisfied. Why? Because things don't last. Right? We, we want something and we enjoy it and then it changes and we change. goes away. So again the wanting mind comes up and again we reach out and again it doesn't last. There is no end to it. We think that by satisfying the want we're going to come to some happiness. And one of the great realizations in Dharma practice is the realization that happiness does not lie in the satisfaction of desire. And again, let me repeat, it's not to say that the enjoyment of nice things, is, is, that's fine. It's the, it's the wanting or the craving in the mind thinking that the satisfaction of it is going to bring us happiness. That's illusion. And if we reflect on our experience in the past, we see that it's illusion. Because it worked. When I was, Sharon and I were teaching in Africa this last year, we came across the perfect manifestation of the wanting mind. It was a kind of cookie. (laughs) The name, the name of the cookie, you know, that's on the package, eat some more. (laughs) 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 And that's really, that's really what we're doing. Eat some more, have another one. Wanting, attachment to, attachment to sense pleasure doesn't work because it's never satisfied. And so it leaves us continually frustrated. We wonder why we're frustrated in our lives, why we can't come to a place of completion, of happiness, because we're looking for it in the wrong place. We're looking for it in the place that it's not. And so we stay continually frustrated. And again, it doesn't take any great enlightenment to see this. It takes a very simple reflection on our own lives, on our own experience. There's another aspect to wanting that's worth looking at. And that is the poverty mentality that's created in the mind when there's, when there's strong wanting or craving or desire. It's the mentality that, that's feeling or thinking that somehow we're not enough. We're not complete now And if only I could get whatever, whether it's a different mind state or a person or an object, if I could get that, then I'd be complete, then I'd be happy. And so the very wanting is built 
on a mentality of being incomplete, impoverished. Of course, the getting of what we'd want doesn't complete us, and so we live our lives in, in that mentality. It's not... It's not very satisfactory for us. When there's strong wanting in the mind, not only is it the state of poverty, of feeling incomplete, it's actually a state of tension. It's the tension between what our experience is in the moment and what we want it to be. If you had to embody in your posture the mind state of wanting, how would you embody it? Maybe something like right? Just wanting. If you would all do this for a moment, just want. Just want with your body, a real good want. (laughs) Okay, hold it for a minute. Hold it. How does it feel? It's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? (laughs) It's really off balance. We're being pulled out of the moment by the seeking of something that's not in the moment. And that's an actual state of being off balance, in tension. The wanting itself is this state of unsatisfactoriness. For all these reasons... We have to look at the nature of the wanting mind because it's very powerful. We are led to a very large degree in our lives by the power of the wanting mind. To see what's that about? How is it working? Is it really going to bring us some kind of happiness, some kind of completion? Or is there another possibility? What is it? Okay, if the wanting mind, if this desiring, grasping, clinging is suffering, both because it's never satisfied, because it's a tension, because it's a, it's a quality of poverty in the mind, if wanting is unsatisfactory, then there's the possibility of not wanting. And of coming to coming to a place of rest, of balance. What is it that we never want? We never want what we have. The wanting is quite redundant <laughs> because we already have it. And so you see where the solution to this difficulty is. If we can learn how to settle back into an open experience of the moment without resisting if it happens to be unpleasant, without reaching out for something that's pleasant, simply being open, being present. We begin to experience that there's actually a fullness in each moment. We are complete already. We don't need anything else to come to a sense of completion or wholeness. It's all here now. And so the practice is much more a quality of settling back into the moment. It's not a reaching out for anything.
So take a look, because this reaching out not only becomes apparent in how we live our lives, it, it comes into our sitting practice as well. When you're sitting, is there the sense of simply being settled back and present for what's there, or is there a trying to get something? A trying to attain something, a trying to do something. Because that trying is another way, it's another manifestation of wanting. Okay, desire, wanting. It's worth taking a look at. It's an important, it's a very powerful energy in our lives. And it can be understood. We can learn how to see it very directly. We can learn how to settle into the moment. There's another attachment in addition to sense desires that's very strong and creates an enormous amount of conflict on all levels, interpersonally, in society, between cultures. And that's the attachment in the mind that we have to opinions about things. We have so many opinions. We have opinions about everything. You know, we have opinions about politics and economics and meditation and other people and what happens after death and how the meditation should be and thousands of opinions. The more attached we are to them, and it's sort of like sense pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the opinions. They come and they go. They're just opinions. When we get attached to them, It's so obvious that to the degree that we're attached to them, we're in conflict with everybody else who happens to have another one, which is everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth taking a look at our relationship to our own ideas about things and to reflect that we all, we're all viewing experience from a particular perspective, you know. And we can look at it from here and it looks one way. And we look at it from here and it looks another way. And we look at it here, it looks another way. And if we can remember that, if we can remember that we don't have the absolute scoop on reality. We can still have ideas about it. We can have opinions based on our experience. But it gives us more respect for the possibility of other opinions and other views. And in fact, it allows us to enlarge our own perspective. Attachment to opinions. The last big attachment There's attachment to to sense desires, attachment to views and opinions. The root, the root attachment is the attachment we have to the idea or concept of self, of I, of me. It goes so deep, and I spoke a lot about it the other evening. An image that I used in one of the groups, which... I'd like to share with all of you, as a way of understanding how we get attached to the idea of self. 
if you have you know, a firebrand, torch of fire, and you whirl it around very quickly, it appears as if there's a circle of fire. That's the appearance. Right? But the circle is there as a, as a kind of entity. But actually, that's a trick of perception. There's no circle there, but it's rather a continuous process going very quickly. And because our perception is not that quick, because we can't see it moving so quickly, it appears as if it's a circle. In exactly the same way, this is a process that's arising and passing and changing so quickly that it has the appearance of Joseph, the appearance of a man. And on one level of perception, that's, that's accurate. But on a more refined level of perception, we see that just like that circle of fire, there's no circle there, but it's just a very quick process of change, that this is happening in exactly the same way. That there's no single being here, who's Joseph, but rather just moment after moment, arising and passing. And as we see that, a few years ago, there was a, there was a uh, film, a movie short, that was very interesting. I'm sure some of you have seen it. It starts off with uh, just some people in a robot, a rowboat in a lake, in the middle of a lake. And the first part of the film, I, I forget in which sequence it happens, but in one part of the film, it's as if the camera is moving away from the rowboat in the lake. You know, so then you see the whole lake and then you see the surrounding countryside and then you see the whole country and then you see the planet and then you see the, you know, the solar system and the galaxies. And as you move further and further away, the view becomes larger and larger and larger. Well, you, know, you no longer have have any sight at all of the, of the robot. <laughs> and then the, the, the other part is you're back with the people in the rowboat on the lake and it starts going in. Right? And it goes in and in and in. You know, and then you, you just see the body and then into the cells and then into the molecules you know, and then into the atoms and then in and in and in. And what happens? The same expansion there's as much space when you go in as there is when you go out. That's quite interesting, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Really what we're doing in the meditation, we have the power. There's the power of the mind to go in and in and in and in. And as we go in, we have to come up against all those places of resistance, and that's part of the process. But as we soften and soften and soften and open, we go in and in and in, and suddenly there's this opening into a whole, a whole other dimension or reality, a way of understanding what this is. The point is that that place, that inward place, is not a better place than this. It's another level of perception. But as we begin to see that and experience that, 
we get less attached to any one level. And so we see we, we operate on this level, fine, and we do it without attachment. Because we know that it's just, it's just a particular perspective that we happen to be in. When we experience that amazing spaciousness of going in, there's not much attachment left to the body. And we use the body and we feel it. And when the body dies, there's no problem. <laughs> As we see that this feeling of a body is only, it's only true on a certain level. So there's tremendous freedom, tremendous opening, which can happen through the refinement of our perception. And that's what we're doing in the practice, paying careful attention. The Buddha said there is one way to awakening, to realization. It's not the way of Buddhism. Right? The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught how to be aware, how to pay attention, how to be awake. That's what we're practicing. And it takes repeated practice because the mind is very habituated to forget. It's okay. Every time it forgets, we come back, we pay attention again, and we look and feel with greater care and greater precision. And forgets, and we come back and we do it again and again. And the power of mind builds. It's the truth which liberates, not your efforts to be free. This is the challenge, and as we're coming toward the end of the retreat, I feel that it's very important to emphasize that being on a retreat in this environment is a wonderful opportunity to refine the perception, to learn to pay attention. But if it's not, if there's not a commitment to this awareness all the time in our lives, then it gets very fragmented. And then you come to retreat and then you go home and that's something else. Instead of seeing that our life is a whole and that it's all our Dharma practice. And we can really, we can really awaken increasingly to what's true. Any questions? Could you comment on the right effort in terms of what you said? Right. right. The question was about right effort. In some way, I see all of practice as finding out what right effort means. <laughs> you know, it, because it's, it's so important. The Buddha talked about right effort as being the foundation of the foundation of it all. Without right effort, nothing happens. We just play out the old conditioning. But right effort means right effort rather than efforting. And we have to see in our own minds the difference between right effort is the effort to be aware in the moment, not the effort to get anything. It's not the effort of reaching out. See, in some way, effort is not even... I think there's a 
part of the connotation in English sets us in the wrong direction. Because often in English, when we hear effort, we think of trying. And already that's too much. Maybe a better word would be right energy. Sort of arousing the energy to be present. So that it's not a reaching out, it's a settling back and opening up. Doing that again and again and again. You know, every time the mind goes off or drifts or forgets or gets caught up in something, at whatever point we become aware, we simply start again. Any comment about having lost it is extra. And even though we do it a lot, the quicker it can be learned that it's not necessary and not helpful and basically a waste of time, the easier it is. We're off. As soon as we're aware that we're off, we're already aware again. So why blow it again with with a whole comment and judgment about having gone off? The image, the classical image of right effort, right energy, is the Buddha talked of, of this tuning the strings of a lute, not too tight and not too loose. And, and continually we have to pay attention. If you're getting too tight, too tense, too much efforting, too much trying, relax. Just soften. Settle back. You get too relaxed. You go to sleep if you get too relaxed. So then you have to raise the energy a little bit. It's always that balancing. And after some time, you'll, it's like you'll click in to what it means. Good luck. (laughs) One thing that that generally we don't talk much about reflection, you know, because there's a strong emphasis on just the moment to moment experience. But I think in general from with people on a spiritual path, a helpful reflection at times is just to sit and to consider why you're doing this. Why do we practice? And not to be satisfied with the first superficial answer that comes to mind, because the mind will throw out the cliches. But to really drop down into the heart and feel as deeply as we can why we're doing it. Because once that's clear, then it's easier to align ourselves with that purpose. It really arouses energy for us in our practice because we know why we're doing it. And there's a clear sense of purpose in it. Um, and, and it can be very inspiring. Uh, you talked about painful feelings and letting them arise and that 
okay. And I'm with you on that, except when you talked about anger. Because with anger, we affect other people. Would you comment on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I didn't say to necessarily express the feelings. And, and that's commonly misunderstood. Often people think that opening to the feelings means expressing them. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble. Right? Because a lot of these feelings are not helpful to be expressed. The opening to them means that if it's there, we have to be willing to feel it rather than resist or avoid because the resistance or avoidance, first of all, just makes them stronger and kind of pushes them, pushes them out in a subterranean way. They manifest anyway, right? but in a more unconscious way. So if anger is present, the middle way between suppression and expression is allowing the feeling to be there since it's there already. I'm not saying that you should go look for anger if it's arising, not to be afraid of it. Afraid in the sense of, you know, keeping it down, because that doesn't really get rid of it. It's just, it's just a way of further solidifying that particular, that particular energy. Do you, see, do you see the balance between not suppressing and not necessarily expressing? There are some emotions which are skillful to express, others which are not. And in fact, one of the reasons people are sometimes afraid of certain emotions is because they haven't come to the understanding that it's possible to experience them without expressing. And out of the fear of expressing comes the resistance. But there's, an, there's, another, whole, there's another whole way of opening to it, feeling it. And working with emotions... It's interesting to look at them not so much from the story. I mean, if we get caught in the story of the anger or the unworthiness, whatever, then we get really identified and there's a lot of self in that. It's possible to experience the energy of the emotion, the nature. Anger comes, great. It's a chance to really feel what the nature of anger is. How does it feel? It's like being out in an electric thunderstorm. It's intense. There's power there. You're not falling asleep when you're angry. It is difficult. There was a, there was a wonderful book written <coughs> by a psychiatrist working with a schizophrenic. I never promised you a rose garden. It was a great title. It's true. It's difficult, <laughs> <laughs> and it's workable. You know, coming to retreat, coming to a protected environment, allows us the time to develop some tools. As the tools get developed, we find it easier and easier to apply in more stressful situations. 
But that's, that's what's necessary. We can't, just because it's difficult, that's not reason to abdicate the responsibility you know, of, of working with it and looking at it. But it is difficult. Would you say, would you say at some point it becomes necessary to um, uh, be in a more intense environment? For instance, you've done very intense practice. And when, we go back, when I go back into my life, it would be very difficult to remain mind, uh, mindful. And at some point, do you have to make more of a commitment? I think what the commitment has to be is to staying mindful. I'll just <coughs> close with, with a story. Of, there was one uh, woman teacher from, who came from India uh, a couple of years ago. And she had this incredible story. Very bright. As, as a child, very bright. Um, loved school. At age 14, she was married off. This was the custom in her village. Totally against her wishes. She, she was a schoolgirl, and she wanted to continue. And there she was married in the kitchen of her in-law's house all day long. Very difficult. At 16, she had her first kid. At 17 or 18, her second child. Totally bound up you know, in, in the household life without wanting to be at all, a lot of suffering. She had, she had some contact with the Dharma and the teachings and had the, the paramis in her. And she determined to practice in her life. She determined to make, the, make her life the practice. And she did it. She started paying attention to everything she did. All the all the mundane, stressful, busy activities of life. We're doing them anyway. It's not that mindfulness is something else to do. You know? We're doing them anyway, and it's simply a question, are we going to pay attention to what we're doing, make the effort to pay attention, or not? She was willing to do that. It was very important to her. Amazing. I mean, she came to very high states of awakening and realization. You know. And so, don't let the practice, in your minds, don't let the practice depend on a form. You know, it's fine. I mean, retreats are fine. And obviously, there's a power here that's very helpful. It's tremendously helpful. And as much as people can do and are inclined to do, Certainly encouragement for that. Don't make the practice dependent on that. Because it's not. It doesn't have to be. You know? What it does take is a willingness, a seeing of the importance of it, and then doing it. You're walking down the street. Are you paying attention? You're driving your car. Are you paying attention? You're talking to somebody. Are you paying attention? It is. It's a tremendous challenge. Now that's makes life interesting. <laughs> Thank you. If you have some questions, you can come up for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.